This episode of Armchair Explorer is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. And epic journeys is what we're all about. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Hey guys, welcome back to the Armchair Explorer, where the world's greatest adventurers tell their best story from the road. I'm Aaron Miller. I'm a travel writer. And man, I am excited about today's show because we have one of my favorite people on today. Jamie Cato is a former member of the band Faithless. He's also the uh, film producer and director and musician behind One Giant Leap, along with his partner, Duncan Bridgman. Uh, one Giant Leap is one of my favorite ever uh, uh, musical and film projects. I absolutely love it. If you haven't heard it, about it before, you are in for a treat. It was an album created during a round the world journey. And he's coming on to tell that story. It's a story about music. It's a story about creativity and inspiration. And it's a story about finding unity in diversity. Get ready to have your mind blown, your ears soothed, and get ready to have Jamie Cato take us on one giant leap around the world. Total transparency, I am biased. I love One Giant Leap, uh, but I also am very close to it because one of my first ever jobs as a mere 22-year-old sprog running around London was uh, working on One Giant Leap and helping to promote the album and get it out there. And I went on tour with the boys and uh, just had the time of my life. So it's a huge honor to have Jamie back. It was so much fun to catch up with him again. He is such an articulate storyteller. He's such a funny guy. And you can connect with him in lots and lots of ways. But perhaps the best is just going to his website, jamiecato, C-A-T-T-O dot com. But first, just a reminder, we are building a community here of explorers, of people that love this planet and want to celebrate it by exploring every inch of it. If that sounds like you, welcome. You're in the right place. We're going to get on well. Please leave us a, a review if you can. Please sign up to our website, armchair-explorer.com, where you can actually book all the trips that we talk about uh, on this show and other adventures too. We love helping people, helping our community of explorers get out there and see the world in the best way possible. Please also join our Facebook page, Armchair Explorer Podcast, and follow me on social media, Aaron M. Writer. That's double A-R-O-N-M Writer. But right now, I want us to listen. I want us to listen to this beautiful music because what we are hearing right now is the way One Giant Leap's album starts. This is Baba Mal from Senegal. Uh, This is his call to prayer. And this is uh, just an absolutely beautiful way to start the show. One Giant Leap was just such an amazing opportunity as an artist. It's like being the luckiest artist in the world. Duncan and I began the whole thing with like, there must be a way for these incredible world music artists to sound good. So we decided to put together this kind of hip-hop-y, Pink floyd backing tracks to really kind of showcase how incredible Baba Mal is or how incredible Harry Prasad Chereza is or these amazing artists. And then it became a film of, wow, we can go around and film ourselves doing it and having interviews on all the big subjects of life, spiritual things and tribal things and musical things, theatrical things, artistic things, mix it all together and make the most amazing, powerful, emotional impact. Ah, 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 ah,
All the different places we went, all the different artists and thinkers we worked with became these little jewels that was going to make this huge mosaic of something incredible, but we didn't know what until the end. And what it expressed was unity through all the diversity, and that was the wonderful artistic and personal discovery for all of us making the project. Unity and diversity became the theme of the project and it's something we're going to come back to. That as they travelled around the globe collecting these little jewels of music and uh, inspiration, the more diversity they found uh, and encountered, the more unity they discovered within that. It's a, it's a beautiful uh, sentiment that kind of underlays the whole of the project and it's something that, that Jamie's going to talk about more later. But first, um, I just want to give a little bit of background because this was back in 1999 when they set out on the eve of the millennium before social media and iPhones. Jamie and Duncan set out with a mobile recording studio, something that had never been done before. And they traveled the world for six months recording everyone they met from world music stars uh, and Western celebrities. But they also just met street performers and, and people they, uh, they, they, they just happened to bump into. And that's really what traveling is all about. It's about that lovely randomness that happens when you just open your arms and your heart to the world and the universe repays you by just sending you awesome cool people to hang out with so for me this isn't just an album it isn't just a film it's like a global jam so we set out um, 1999 we knew we were going to be somewhere on the top of a peak of a mountain in Sikkim on the New Year's Eve millennium like with these two shepherds feeling like we were on top of the world on the top of a Himalaya with all the clouds beneath us and these two shepherds dancing around the fire and you could almost feel the whole of planet earth spread out beneath you partying as the sun went round the earth and everyone went into the year 2000 uh, one by one and it, it was just an amazing place in total stillness and silence to feel the whole globe throbbing with the Millennium Party. Yeah, we set out a few months earlier than that and we, we started off in Africa because our label had our label managed Baba Mar and had lots going on in Senegal so our first trip was one of, it's an extraordinary country especially as a musician Senegal but even if you're not you know it's sweltering heat you really you get off the plane you just the smell the feeling on your skin you really know you know you're not at home you know this is not Kansas anymore Dorothy um, it just feels so, so different. It was my first real hit of Africa. I'd been to South Africa before, but I just hadn't had that total sort of like, you go out of the city a couple of hours, you're talking proper villages with sort of mud huts and people living in a way that you just so, so far removed from how we've been brought up. Duncan had built this mobile studio that you could you could work anywhere in a forest on the top of a mountain. And back in 99, that was news. You know, nowadays it's much more easy to be mobile. But when Duncan first built that studio, we were like the first to do it. And to suddenly be setting up in Ghana in a forest with these xylophone players or to suddenly be setting up on the top of a, a mountain with a Sikkimese violinist or or Michael Stipe's house in Georgia, Athens, Georgia. It was just, we could just start recording and being in the album-making, collaborating, composing process immediately. And um, oh, it was so wonderful because a lot of the times we would be in a village or somewhere recording and we'd put the headphones on the guy um, who was sitting under the tree with his, you know, funny instrument playing. 
but only me and Duncan and the guy had our headphones on, so only we could hear his playing along with our incredible, rich, epic track. So we could hear him in the track and it all sounding amazingly, but everyone else standing around, they couldn't hear what we could hear in the headphones. They could just see, you know, Uncle Nigel still playing his instrument under his tree to them. It was, But then at the end, when he'd done his take and we were all, like, marvelled by it, Duncan would unplug the headphones so that the big speakers were on and the whole village would hear Uncle... Uh, Nigel in with this incredible beats and the guy last week from China or the guy you know from India or the guy wherever you know the hit with all other instruments in and everyone's eyes like roll back and they hear what's really going on which is the fusion of the thing they've heard every day in some huge epic bit of music yeah we went from Senegal uh, and into Ghana uh, and for, and then we worked with the African Showboys and the Mustafa Tetiadi drummers and Kokrabite on the coast. And we were like, what? Is this? this is so amazing. Uh, and also the people that were funding us were like, it was Chris Blackwell who signed Bob Marley and U2. And he's like an amazing sort of maverick, fly-by-the-seat-of-his-pants artist himself. And so when we said we're going around the world, we're doing this, and he was like, yes, do it. We said, well, what, what's the budget? How do we work this out? And we all kind of scratched our heads and he went, well, you know what, we've never really, no one's done anything like this before and we've never done it. Just call us when you need more money. <laughs> so every country we'd get to, we'd call out running out of money and they'd send money through to the bank. Like, so when we got to Ghana, their biggest note is called, Cities, I think, is the currency in Ghana and their biggest note is like worth like five quid. Um, and they were sending over like 5,000 quid from England for the next leg of the trip. So literally, when we went to the bank to pick it up, it was like a bin liner full of money. <laughs> we looked like baddies in a bond film. We had to stack it up in the hotel and everything, and the operation we had to do to get from the bank to the hotel, the whole thing was just hilarious. It's the dream trip, isn't it? Oh, my God. Travel the whole world on an unlimited budget just jamming with the greatest musicians on the planet and starting a global conversation about deep things that I just love uh, talking about when I've had one too many. This is just a perfect trip. I love it. In Ghana, they recorded villagers, you know, just spinning into a religious trance. In Uganda, they recorded these incredible earth drummers who were who were playing this giant marumba that placed over a pit played by eight people in the townships of south africa they just came across some of the most beautiful uh, singing that you'll ever hear One of the things we noticed most, especially actually in South Africa, which was weird, and I don't want to sound too hippie here, but the richer people, the poorer people were, the more generous they were. You'd be in a mud hut somewhere in the outskirts of God knows where, uh, um, and they would give you everything, you know, they have nothing and they want to give you everything, the only little bit of chicken they have that they're feeding the whole family with, they want you to sit with them, it's honours, and you have to eat it, you know, you want to, otherwise you dishonour them, you know, you want to honour their incredible gift and... So you receive it knowing that they're going to have less and it's just insane. And also you, and, and in, in many of the richer places, you know, we had experiences where it was like, whoa, um, so, so the opposite. Um, but we learned all the different, you know, so many different ways about the different ways people live. And yet there was just so, such a unity of humanity that ran through the whole trip. 
of the different ways people treated us because you realize when you're on the road and you're especially in off the road places like in Africa and rural India you really really appreciate this isn't the faithless tour bus and believe me there's no room service you really really appreciate people's hospitality and a particular energy with which people greet you and look after you and care for you um, there's a beautiful Muslim phrase the road is king and that was another you know beautiful thing we were treated to and I've kept for the rest of my life is that that beautiful thing the road is king whoever knocks on your door is God give them the best bed in the house I love that the road is king man I could have called the podcast that I just love that I've been lucky to experience it many times myself too that the generosity of strangers the humility with which people who have far less than than what I was born and blessed with give freely and opening openly it's such an inspiration and um, always just humbles me and, and reminds me that the world deep down is a good and kind place that most of the people that you will, will meet on the road are good and kind and generous people and if you travel with that spirit with that spirit of open arms of being an explorer of the world with an open arms and open heart then that's generally what you get reflected back so after africa jamie and duncan went to india it's one of my favorite parts of the film, uh, some of the most beautiful musical contributions. And it's just a country that I love. I went backpacking around there in my 20s. And uh, it's, just a, it's just a magical place. Um, we're going to go deep here. I'm just warning you, we're about to go really deep. We're about to get into spirituality and God and death because India makes you do that. It just makes you think about that side of things that so often we forget about here in the West. When I think about the India part which it's always left me wanting to go back. I've been back quite a few times. India's this place that you just can't wait to get there. It's so magical. It is in many ways like stepping into a kind of fairyland because the, the consciousness of everybody there is they don't question spirituality. And they don't have conversations about whether God exists or not. You, you ask someone, does God exist? They look at you in a funny way. They don't question it. So it's so, in, so part of everybody. Like every cab has his own God or goddess on the dashboard. It's so ingrained in people's experience that there, that there is a spiritual dimension to life that when you step into however many billion now live there who are all vibrating with that, you can't help but be touched by it or stirred up by it or even collapsed by it if you're resistant to it. Uh, it's a very kind of intense place to be, but it's also if you're open and you, and you love that kind of stuff, it's like stepping into fairyland in many ways. It's literally into the twinkly magic, magic place. There's a place called Shantinakatan, which is literally like being in another dimension. It's like being high. You're not on any drugs, but it's like some soft, focused, smiley... <laughs> I don't want to say Teletubby land, but it's like it, it's so good and so pure. You, The good, pure part of you comes out and you're like, wow, this exists all the time here, you know. They say that if you were to drop a pebble out of a window in India, it's chances are it's going to land on a philosopher. And uh, that's probably why I love it so much. But um, it was true for, the, for, for Jamie and Duncan too, because one of the best, most fascinating, wisest person they, they interviewed on this whole trip was, a, was an Indian man called Lanesh Shesh. And he wasn't some guru. He wasn't some writer. He wasn't some doctor or philosophy or some hotshot. He was just the guy who ran the hardware store uh, opposite the hotel they stayed in, and they and they just happened to bump into them, and uh, bump into him. He invited them upstairs to his home and just started talking. In my case, it happened like this: that one day, suddenly, I wondered, 
You see, who is this guy who lives within me when I am asleep? And I thought that I never knew this guy who lives within me. Who is this? And then I realized that he doesn't talk when I talk. Yes. He talks, you see, when I stop talking. Yes. And he talks in terms of sensations, in terms of silence, in terms of inspiration, in terms of joy, in terms of producing energy. Yes. This is his language. So I began to listen to his language. See. And then I found that I was only breathing. And he was there. I was only breathing. And and at one point of time this duality that he and me are different. I see. Began to it began to dissolve. So they went all over India. It was a crazy trip. They went to Bangalore and to Delhi and Mumbai, all those big, crazy cities. Um, and then up into Rajasthan and the foothills of the Himalayas. And, uh, you know, India is a huge country and, and they just collected the most beautiful fragments of music and, and film. You know, tabla players in the Rajasthani desert with, you know, their their flock of cattle uh, behind them. Asha Bosle, who they just bumped into in a hotel, and Jamie in his way just um, just talked her into being on, on the on the uh, on the record, and she just sang one take, and it ended up being uh, a part of a song called "The Way You Dream," which uh, Michael Stipe from REM ended up performing on. It was just an incredible uh, trip, and India is an incredible place to visit, but but one place. Stood out, and that's Varanasi, and it's it's just an incredibly spiritual place. But it's a difficult place too because um, it's here in Varanasi where uh, the famous burning ghats are, where they where they where they actually set pyres and and burn their dead. And, and so Varanasi, even though it's this place full of life and color, it's also perhaps the closest to the reality of death that many of us. Uh, will ever come uh, in our kind of sanitized Western world. This episode of Armchair Explorer is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. And Pathfinder, that's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Because that's also what this show is all about. Exploring, getting off trail, having adventures, finding your own path and living life to the fullest. Sound like you? Yep, sounds like me too. Which is why I'm so excited to partner with Nissan. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has seven drive modes, available intelligent 4x4. It's got the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds. So go ahead and bring all that gear with you and lots more. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder, a vehicle built for adventures everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So we went to Varanasi, not just because they burn human bodies there, and it was the first time any of us had seen a dead body, let alone one burning on a pyre and praying by the water and the huge Ganges River coming past with all these different boats and different fishermen. And um, so it's just kind of this mad... Um, place anyway and full of musicians and all the architecture is ancient and it's huge um, and uh, I, it smells like chicken of course all the bodies are being burnt and that's kind of weird after a while um, and we had some just exquisite experiences with the musicians, I don't know if it will translate telling you but you know there was this one we'd, we got these, this boat and we just bedecked it in all these beautiful orange flowers and this wonderful sarangi player which is like a sort of like a small cello much more scratchy sounding and a uh, tabla player, and we played them our music. They had our headphones on and just played along, jamming along with it as we were plopping along down the river with flowers everywhere and looking at the shore where all the people were praying and beating their laundry on rocks and coloured materials and mosques where you can hear the call to prayer coming, echoing out over the water and the trees on the other side. I mean, it was just one of those heavenly experiences where you go, wow, we are the luckiest artists in the world. Um, you know, if you can edit what flashes before your eyes before you die, that's, that's in. In fact, I'm getting Duncan to edit what flashes before my eyes before I die because he's such an amazing condenser of the beauty of things. I don't want to take, take any chances. Yes, you talk to God. I love the way you dream. I love the way you dream. I love the way you Death is always going to be it's one of the big subjects in art and with our journeys because it includes so much about the predicament of being a human and the predicament of being a human and what it's like being an artist and being a person is so wrapped up in how you view death and whether you're just burying it and just not thinking about it until it's the last minute or whether you know you make your whole life in preparation for it as the Tibetan Buddhists do. Um, because, as I said before, in India they have this this sense of spirituality that isn't questioned. They don't have the same fear as death as we have. Also, because we send death out of the house, our old people die in sanitised environments far from home that we visit on Sundays, mostly, these days. And in India, people die in the home and they're carried out through the street and then they're burnt by the river with the prayers. But everyone sees it, so it's like part of life. One day, grandma's not very well. Then we're only coming in very quietly in the house to kiss her goodnight and the curtains are mostly drawn. Then she passes. Then the body goes out. And you, all, you, were, you saw it all. It was all part of something that happened in the home. So death isn't so distant from us and therefore such a phantom that everyone's so terrified of. In the West, though, in America and in England... We are so, so terrified of death. We've removed ourselves from it so much. And the ego grasping that has grown through doing that means that we are in a cult of youth. We're so much in denial of it that we can't even bear to look at it. We don't even put it on TV. Um, everything has to be young. Every artist or model or whatever is past it once they're 24 years old. Um, we believe, you know, we have a cult of youth and yet it's actually the old people that have the most beautiful, wise epic things to share with us if only we'd listen to them you know 
So we've got it slightly the, the funny way around. We, you know, we, we live in massive death fear, and that's what huge consumerism is about. It's like it's constantly just trying to put off and to, to, to fill that empty hole where we know that we are going to have to cross over alone and let go of everything we've bought. Everything we own is going to crumble to dust or belong to somebody else. Someone's going to come around and pack up your room. And when you die, it's going to be a day like today. You know, it's not. It's going to still be you, the you that you feel like you today. It's going to be you, the way you're feeling like you've always felt being you. It's not going to be that different. It's not some big removed thing. It's real. And um, I actually use my deathbed now as the barometer for any decision. You know, how would I feel about this decision on my deathbed? Should I spend that extra 45 quid on the nice bag with the good zip? Yes. <laughs> I'm going to be glad I had that bag and that I gave myself that on my deathbed. I'm not going to be, oh, thank, I, thank God I saved that 45 quid. I use the deathbed as the barometer for all the major decisions. That is just pure Jamie Cato, and he won't mind me saying it. Deeply spiritual, one of the most spiritual geezers you'll ever met, but just deeply of our time now and in the moment. And that's kind of partly what his message is, is like, be happy now, do what you love now. If it was your last day on earth, what project would you work on? What piece of art would you choose to create and leave for this world? Well, do that. That's what you should be doing. Um, and I love that. I love that inspiration. And it's something I need to be reminded of oftentimes as well. If we spend all our time planning for the future, then we forget that all there is is right now. And facing the reality of death in some way can help us be more alive and present uh, and realize that, that juiciness, as Jamie would say, of the moment. So as you can tell, uh, Jamie's a deep guy, he's a fascinating man, and uh, um, unsurprisingly, after One Giant Leap, he's still doing a bunch of music and film projects, including that incredible movie about Ramdas becoming nobody, uh, which I, I urge you to check out. It's hilarious and enlightening, which is just such a brilliant combination. But unsurprisingly, Jamie has got into doing a lot of workshops, a lot of spiritual work himself. Um, and so he's a great guy to, to talk to about that kind of thing. But so I wanted to, I asked him, um, I wanted to know if there was if some kind of link that he saw between that acceptance of, of spirituality that he, he uh, discusses in India, that, that just prevalence of it everywhere um, and the acceptance of death that he found in Varanasi. Is there some kind of link? Are we denying ourselves some kind of spiritual reality here in the West by also denying ourselves the reality of death? This is his answer. And it's pretty cool. In the, in the film I just made, Becoming Nobody, the Ramdas film, he talks about death a lot. And one of the wonderful things he says is that if you only look at life through the eyes of um, your everyday world, the ego that thinks you're you, Ari, I'm Jamie, going about your life, the things that are important to you, the things that you hope happen, the things that you hope don't happen. Um, if you live just on that channel, like a TV channel, that's your main reality that you believe to be truth, then you're going to be terrified of death because that is the part that dies. That is, and, and then death to you is the cessation of existence. But if you also have a spiritual component to your life, a, a soul feeling or something that has continuity after you die um, and something that has been here long before you were born, then you're going through a process of inevitable change. You're not ceasing to exist. That's a very different thing to handle. If you have a spiritual component, death is part of change. It's 
part of the necessary and everything is constantly in change. I'm, I turned 50 last year. I just noticed different things about how quickly my body mends itself if I hurt myself, how fast I move, maybe how, how my sex drive, you know, all kinds of things are different than they were 20 years ago. Uh, and that is, I can grieve those things and think, oh no, something's wrong. Or I can go, oh no, this is part of the natural change. My skin is looking a bit like this over here. And if I have a spiritual component, then I'm not heading towards the finality of ceasing to exist. Um, part of me is, and that will always be a bit scary, probably for everyone, even Ramdas. You know, like Woody Allen says, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Um, you know, no one's going to feel great about it. But um, if you have that spiritual component, then I think death is much less scary and therefore life is much less scary. That's amazing. Um... So, anyway, uh, time to leave death and God behind momentarily because uh, next the boys left India uh, and they went up to the top of the Himalayas to Nepal. They went to Bangkok. Um, but then they flew after that to, uh, to, to Australia and they met uh, with just an incredibly inspiring guy, an Aborigine by the name of Fred Reed. We were going to Australia to work with these Aboriginal artists and this guy that lectures in schools but totally gets into all the gear and the mud flaking off him and his kids do as well. And cinematically, it was going to be beautiful on the top of these rocks and uh, he was going to give us the, the lowdown from an Aborigine perspective. And he was so passionate and so humble that he ended up being one of the real high points of the movie. Now people are hunters and gatherers of the land, spiritually linked with the land only taking from the land what is needed. But today, when our people see or hear about a special place, a sacred place being ripped apart by big machinery, these special places might not mean nothing to non-Aboriginal people, but believe me, these special places, they mean a lot for our people spiritually. These places are the dreaming places. And today, even though our people are living and adapting into this lifestyle, the dream time, the dreaming time. I, I love the sound of that so much. I love the idea of it, that we've, that we've dreamed this world into existence. And maybe we have. And the more they find out about quantum mechanics and, and uh, the craziness of, of physics and the universe, the more it seems that our consciousness is intimately connected with the creation of, uh, of the universe and matter and everything that we see and feel. We are consciousness. We are the universe. And I, and I think that the Aborigines... Uh, instinctively have known that this is one of the oldest uh, races in the planet their culture is unbroken for the last 50,000 years or more and that's that's incredible it's like a direct link back to our stone age ancestors and there's such wisdom uh, there that we should listen to um, and the the idea the dream time to me is just such a it's just a, such a beautiful idea that it was this time of uh, when ancestral beings rose up from the featureless void and they took form and, and, and manifested the physical world that we see around us. They became the animals and the humans and the birds and travelled the earth creating mountains and rivers and deserts and trees with their actions. And we can still see evidence of this everywhere so that for them... Their, their, their ancestral spirits are, are intimately connected. They are the land. And that's what I love about the Aborigines. There is no division between the earth and the body and the spirit. It's all one. Guilty, the 
So after Australia, they popped over to New Zealand, one of my favourite countries again, somewhere that went backpacking around uh, a bunch and just loved it. If you love adventure and huge landscapes, uh, New Zealand is just the most awesome place on the planet. But but they had a surprise in store for them there. We only rooted through New Zealand because my daughter had moved there. She was uh, three years old and her mum had gone to live there for two years. So I missed her, you know, everydayness. And we put, the, you know, the trip through New Zealand so I could be with her. But we had no idea that when we were going to get there, what we were going to find. And just before we got there, this wonderful artist called Michael Franti from the band Spearhead said, listen, if you're going, you've got to check out the Maori culture there. And I've got a friend there called Inia Taylor who does the tattoos for the Once Were Warriors movie and is an amazing artist and a cultural, you know, hero in a way. And he picked us up from the airport and suddenly we had this hookup and he introduced us to all these amazing fucking people and the culture and we learned all about this incredible, soulful, growing culture of the Maoris. Um, it was so moving and just for some reason, I don't know why, if it was, the, it was whether I was, because I was with Indian, reunited with my three-year-old or whether it was something between some, God knows what, connection with the Maoris. I don't know what it was that blew me away, but I was just like in a, in a dream <clears throat> while I was there. A bit like the Shantanakatan thing in India I was telling you about, but not because it was pure. It was like... If I can describe it, and I don't know if this means anything, but like, you know, in some movies, someone goes into a coma and then they're going into this funny realm where they have a conversation with their father on a beach, which is not in this, they're not dead and they're not alive. They're in this in-between place. That's what it felt like being with the Maoris. It felt like we were halfway between the real world and the spirit world. And they, they, they're like the Indians. They don't question it. You know, they have their, their magic. And some of them, you know, they want to protect their magic. Who are you fucking? They're, they're warriors, you know. They're, they sat us down a few times, these big fucking guys, and said, who the fuck do you think you are coming in here, you know, taking little bits of our culture to weave into your collage? You know, this is our magic. You know, who are you to do this? And it was a really brilliant challenge, and it was fun to stand up and, and answer it passionately and mean, this is good for the world, this is good for Maori people, this is good for fucking everyone, this is inspiring, um, and if you, you know, if you don't like it, we won't keep your bit anyway. But, you know, we do believe, we feel passionately, this is a fucking wonderful thing to do, what we're doing. And it's going to bring people together and it's going to create so much unity and break so many, dissolve so many barriers and can only make, it's made out of inspiration and passion from all these different cultures. It's going to hit home to people's hearts. It's good and it's worth doing and, and we stand beside it. And they were like, yeah, <laughs> it was cool. The Maori culture is just such a beautiful culture, just like the Aborigines. It's such a beautiful culture that is that is coming back, that is strong, uh, that is not amalgamating into the whole. Uh, it is standing strong in its own unique uh, indigenous identity, and and that is that that in itself is a huge inspiration. And I think some of the coolest. Uh, quotes uh, from the film and uh, some of the best interviews uh, came out of that Maori culture. It's such a strong and powerful place to be. Um, and also uh, this this beautiful song, Tamoko, um, sung by Wiri Mako Black. And it was, it's, for me, this is just one of the most beautiful points in the album. <laughs> But 
New Zealand was also where Jamie bit off a little bit more than he could chew. On the last couple of days, I was offered a, a magic tattoo, which they call Moko. And uh, me being a narcissistic egomaniac was like, well, I only will do this if I'm going to have the biggest one across my whole back and down both arms like fucking lunatic. Um, and I massively bit off more than I could chew um, and learned a very valuable lesson because I couldn't stop halfway through. It, the, first of all, the guy does this thick outline of this thing all over your body and that itself is like very very extreme and then the next day coming back he was like you know that line's not thick enough and it's now red and sore that line the pattern all over your body that's going to be filled in he goes no i've got to go over it again now it's like are you fucking kidding me um and i went downstairs and after i'd done like four more hours of him doing that and i was like in a state of like mental and emotional exhaustion and i went downstairs to have a rest and looked at myself in this like long mirror and it only like you know half of it had even been done and I knew I had at least like 12 hours left because I had a plane the next morning I couldn't leave it half done it's New Zealand you know it's fucking miles away I looked myself in the mirror and I went now you're going to learn now you're going to learn what having a massive narcissistic ego and having to be Mr. Best big shot impress everybody now you're going to pay you're going to go upstairs and have 12 hours of thinking about this decision <laughs> it was a big spiritual teaching I don't have a tattoo. I surprisingly don't have a tattoo. I feel all my friends have tattoos and I kind of always wanted one. But uh, I think if, if, if I was in that situation, I would get a Maori tattoo too. I think that's so cool. But I don't know if I would get one all across my back that took 12 hours to do. That just sounds too painful for me. Okay, so the, the final stop, they've been through Africa and India and the Far East, Australia, New Zealand, and they had one stop left and that was America. And by the time they got there... Uh, word had started to spread about what they were doing. I think when we got to America, um, interestingly, it became much more about actually many of the stars that were agreeing to work with us, like Michael Stipe and Dennis Hopper and people like that, Kurt Vonnegut. They... Um, they were all in America. So whereas up till then we hadn't been with anyone that most people would have heard of, we were full of people everyone had heard of day after day after day. And it was a very... Not we were we were tired, but we were so full of energy by this point. We knew how much incredible stuff we had in the can. We'd had the dream trip of six months on the road without a day off. No one had got ill. We had just been sailing through this abundant menu of unexpected, incredible heroes and delights and just magic. So we were just like high as kites thinking we were the most blessed people on the planet. And now we were getting to, you know, play it all to all our favourite, you know, people and, and get them to talk about the concepts and everything. So we were just like on fire when we got there. Um, and a lot of the people still hadn't kind of come through. There was a lot of waiting around, like Kurt Vonnegut was definitely not going to happen after a while. You know, we had waited in New York as long as we could possibly wait, and it was just like, it's not going to happen. And it was a beautiful thing, actually. Just as we were leaving New York, I thought to myself, a very rare, polite thought, I thought, you know what, Kurt Vonnegut's nephew, who's really helped, trying to help me set this up, he's really gone the extra mile, even though it didn't happen, just as we leave town, I'm just going to ring him up and thank him one last time because he really went he really tried <clears throat> so on the way out of town I'm just ringing him up saying I just want to thank you so much even though it didn't happen you've really been a trooper and he goes you know what he's sitting next to me and he's in a great mood hang on a minute the, the phone goes muffled and then he comes back on the line he goes can you come right now and we're like yes <laughs> and we we just fucking hit the roads just did a u-turn <clears throat> 
and found him in upstate New York. And, uh, you know, he's been one of my absolute heroes, Kurt Vonnegut, and uh, one of the great masters. You know, it's like meeting Beethoven in a way. Kurt Vonnegut is one of my all-time heroes as well. Very few writers can be so uh, enlightening and wise and so damn funny all at the same time. He's a genius. Um, and I just want to play you some of the stuff he said in his interview. I think you're going to like it. TV is enough. Is providing artificial friends and relatives to lonely people. What, what it is is a recurrent families the same friends and relatives come back week after week after week after week and they're wittier and they're better looking and they're much more interesting and they're richer than your real friends and relatives i love that tv is enough tv is enough it's creating artificial friends and relatives for lonely people wow man that just that just hits home that's harsh that's a harsh verdict, but it's something that I'm listening to because there's something that chimes. There's a chime of truth in that for me, too. Um, and this was recorded, you know, in the year 2000. God knows what Vonnegut would have made of Netflix. So many magical things happened at the last moment. Um, and, um, yeah, so it was quite star-led. It wasn't so much street people. There was a, a bit, but it, we, were, we weren't so much on the streets in, 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 in America Although a lot of the truck stops, you meet some extraordinary... We did do some, and, you know, you come off a, a North Carolina truck stop and they've got these huge rows of, like, a thousand rocking chairs outside next to these gleaming, immense trucks. It's absolutely so photogenic, America. Everywhere you look, you're a part of some incredible bit of Americana. And, of course, you can't help your heart bursting when you're draw, driving through the, the highways in, uh, and you see Detroit. 112 miles or you see Idaho or you see you know all the places that you that you're going Texas you know it it's so so full of Bob Dylan and cinema and Jonathan Lethem and literature and things that you that, that have blown you away you just become so enriched you're just part of it and and as an artist it was just you know for me heaven is just an understatement it, it sounds like I'm you know waxing too lyrical but you know I was I was so, so absorbed. I was in my early 30s and I was just absolutely blown away by everywhere that we went. I can totally, totally relate to that. As someone who has uh, moved to America from the UK and I live here now in, in Colorado, um, uh, I still find that kind of Americana magic every time I hit the road. I travel a lot around the States. And I love it. There's just so many characters and the landscape is still so big. And there's something particularly out here, out West, there's something so wild about it still. There's just that tinge of the wild West of that great American freedom. And, and I think Jamie's right. You can feel Kerouac and Bob Dylan and, and all those greats uh, on the road with you when you travel here. And I, and I think that's why I love it. So Jamie and Duncan have reached the end of uh, their epic One Giant Leap around the world, a six-month journey across the planet, creating uh, what I think is one of the most beautiful albums ever made and, and, uh, and a Grammy-nominated film that, that you can check out on, uh, on YouTube or onegiantleap.tv. Um, but they'd made it to the end of their journey. And, you know, 20 years on from when this was, was made, I feel like we need another One Giant Leap now. It's time for another one. The world needs a reminder of that unity, that celebration of diversity, 
um, you know that's how we find our common threads our common bonds is through celebrating what is different about us that may sound like a contradiction in terms but it's true One Giant Leap just makes me believe in the world. It makes me want to go out and see the world. And, and uh, if you love traveling, if you love exploring, then this is, this is what travel's all about. It's about setting out into the unknown without, without a plan, without really an idea of, of, of what is going to come from it, but just the faith that something good is going to come from it, that some magic will happen. And more often than not, the universe responds and replies with that magic remember the road is king but the road is also a reflection of what we put into it and when we travel like one giant leap like astronauts from space looking down at humanity as a whole and accepting all that we see as good and part of who we are then the road reflects that and pays us back with a little bit of magic and uh, and i think if you watch the film and, and listen to the album you're going to hear that too And um, I, I asked him another question and I, I wondered if travel and adventure can be a catalyst for, for some of that kind of personal evolution and growth. Um, and this is what he had to say. Yeah, I, I don't think travel is ne necessary for self-development unless you're someone who really has a, who thinks of them as them and us as us. You know, we're all us. That's what you notice when you travel anywhere. They're just people. You look into their eyes, they're just like you. They all hope their mum's okay and their kids are okay and that they're not going to be hungry. And, you know, everybody really, they're, when they're not being triggered, when they're not, when they're not having their survival emotionally or, or materially threatened, are pleasant, kind, often creative and, and hilarious people, you know. And um, you learn that when you travel. So if you're someone that very much still thinks of the people in Yemen who are starving as we speak as them and we're us, but you think of Paris as us and when they have a, um, a shooter that kills a few people, everyone changes their Facebook status. If you think Paris is us but Yemen is them still, then travel. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jamie. Thanks for hanging out with us today. Uh, thanks, uh, thanks to you guys for taking this one giant leap around the world with us. Um, please remember to subscribe to the show if you enjoyed yourself today. Leave a review, share it with your friends, hit up our Facebook page, hit me up on social media, Aaron at Aaron M. Writer. I'd love to hang out and talk travel and adventure with you. And if you want to do this trip yourself, remember you can. We're going to put up a load of stuff on the website about the best uh, musical adventures you can have around the planet. And music is such an icebreaker. It is such an amazing way to connect with other cultures. And I kind of want to end on that note. Music is the universal language. It's a language that we all speak, that we're all born speaking, that we all intuitively know without having to learn it. Rhythm is in our bones. We have been dancing and singing since we first stepped foot on the savannah thousands of years ago, and we're going to do it for the rest of our lives. Music is the great uh, bonder of us all. 
the great human glue that keeps us together. And I hope that you've enjoyed this show. I've really loved getting deep with you. Uh, please come back again. Please see us again. We've got so many great guests coming up. We're fortnightly on Fridays, and we would love to hang out with you again soon. I'm Aaron Miller. I'll see you again soon. Cheers. Bye. Bye.